This is the holiest day of the year. The cross of Jesus Christ is the holiest event in the history of the world. It was not only the holiest event, but it was the most powerful event. If I were to ask you what was more powerful, the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, most people would say the resurrection of Jesus because anybody can die on a cross, but you got to be God to arise again from the dead. But in actuality, it was the crucifixion of Jesus that had a greater power than the resurrection of Jesus. You see, from a human perspective, it's easy to die, but it's not easy to arise from the dead. But from God's perspective, it's much harder to die than it is to give life. The night Jesus was crucified, as he hung on a cross, he was ridiculed. He was mocked and beaten by the soldiers. He was ridiculed by the people who passed by. He was mocked and ridiculed by the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the question they asked was, this man saved others, let him save himself. If he's so awesome, let him come down from that cross. If he's got so much power, let him rescue himself. What they did not realize is that it took far more power for him to stay on the cross than it would have taken for him to come down. He said, if I wanted to, I could have called 10,000 legions of angels in a moment. All I'd have to do is whistle, and heaven would empty itself and come to my rescue. That would be easy. You know what's hard? Staying up here when I have the power to come down. You know what takes power? Enduring something that I have the power to free myself from. The power was in staying on the cross. How much power did it take for God to die? How much power did it take for the one who created the heavens and the earth? Through him all things were made, John said, and without him nothing was made that was made. The one who was the agent of all creation, how much power did it take for him to allow that creation to kill him? And this is why he said, No one takes my life from me. You don't have that kind of power. I lay it down. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it up again. And then he said, this command I have received from my father. Jesus does not approach the cross as a victim. He approaches the cross as the victor. It was his greatest moment of victory that he was able to endure the cross, despising its shame. And this is why he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because of the power to endure the cross. From a human perspective, you have greater power if you could avoid the cross. And we're constantly trying to avoid our crosses, aren't we? I want to read to you a passage of scripture from the book of John chapter 19 that tells us something about the cross that we don't always see or recognize or understand. In John chapter 19, verse 23, or verse 25, excuse me, the scripture says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother 
his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, or Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's interesting to me that in John's gospel and in John's gospel alone, we have this account of Jesus looking down from the cross and identifying the handful of people that were there with him to the end. There were times when multitudes of thousands of people, uh, sometimes they said 5,000 people plus women and children, which means the crowd was probably more like 20,000 people, would follow him wherever he went and sit and listen to him teach for three days at a time with no food and no water. Now, that, those sound like devout followers, right? There were times when, how about the time on Palm Sunday when he journeyed into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on a donkey and the crowd cried out, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those sound like devout followers, don't they? But in actuality, the real devout followers were found not where he was working miracles, not where he was multiplying bread and fish to feed multitudes, not where he was riding on donkeys, but at the place where he hung on the cross, he looked down from the cross, and he did not see 12. He did not see the crowds. He did not see the 5,000. He, he did not even, he only saw one out of his 12 disciples, one. And he saw four ladies. His mother, you can always count on mama to be there. <laughs> I always joke, if it was me, my mom would be at the cross going, no! <laughs> you can always count on mama and his auntie was there that's interesting because she doesn't show up anywhere else in the gospel but she's there it's interesting that there's some undercover believers folks who have something going on in their heart that you would never know you would never know how fervent they are. You would never know how much they love Jesus. You would never know how closely they walk to him because they're not the expressive type and, and you wouldn't hear them sing loud on a Sunday morning. They probably don't even lift up their hands and, and you just think they're, you might even look at them and they might look passive to you and you might think this is, this is not even a real believer. This is a fake believer. But yet when the cross comes, you're not there, but they're standing there. And there's others that might be, you know, waving their hands in the air and jumping and shouting. And you look at them and say, man, that's a, that's a powerful believer right there. But as soon as there's a sign of trouble, I'm up out. When Jesus looked down, he had 
five disciples left. And four of them weren't even of the 12 disciples that he had chosen. But all that was left at the cross were these four ladies and one disciple, John, the guy who actually wrote this book. And you can always see where John shows up because John doesn't use his own name in the Gospel of John. You know what he calls himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Because John experienced the love of Jesus at a level that the other disciples didn't. You remember in the upper room when Jesus said to his disciples, he said, didn't I choose all of you, but yet one of you is a devil. And everybody got real quiet. Oh, snap, I hope it ain't me. You don't want to be in a room with Jesus saying, one of y'all is a devil. Oh, snap. John the way they would recline and eat at a table in ancient Israel, the table was low to the floor, and you would lean on your left arm, and they would lay, a, the person next to you, his head would be on your chest, your head would be on the chest of the person next to you. All of the disciples would line up with Jesus at the end, and John's head would always be on Jesus' chest. And what you would do is you would feed the person behind you. You would feed yourself, and you would feed the person behind you. How intimate is that? The apostle John, John the disciple, got to lay his head on the chest of Jesus every mealtime, and he got to put food in Jesus' mouth. How intimate is that? That's why he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter was a guy of power, but John was a man of love. And at the last moment, in Jesus' final moments when he faces the cross, it's not the man of power who's there, but the man of love. Isn't it interesting that what the cross teaches us is that love is greater than power? That you can spend all your time asking God for power when you need to be asking him for love. Because there's too many believers who have power but not enough love to sustain them through the difficult times and through the, the tough times and through the trials and tribulations. What we have to understand is how difficult it was to stand there at that cross. Because most of us in this room, I think, shoot, I would have been there at the cross. You know, that's what Peter thought. He said, Lord, if everyone forsakes you, I won't forsake you. And Jesus said, for real? For real? You're going to forsake me before tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. It's like, what? Yeah, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter didn't realize that he had a love deficit in his heart, not a power deficit. He was always after more power when he should have been after more love. And that's why when Jesus restored Peter after he had denied him three times, what did did Jesus say to Peter? Simon, do you love me? When Jesus came to restore him, he restored him by filling that love deficit in his heart. He came to establish him in love. He didn't come to give him more power. He didn't come to say, you know what? Now I'm going to give you power so that next time you stand in the face of a temptation, you're not going to fall. You need power. He said, no, 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 Peter. All you need is more love. And notice Peter denied him three times. How many times did Jesus ask him, do you love me? He gave him three chances. And for every one of those denials, Jesus said, I'm I'm going to empower you to overcome your failure with love. And this is why the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. 
Isn't it interesting that the one who experienced the most love from Jesus had the least fear? Because in actuality, to stand at that cross right there was the scariest place to be. Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples that the servant is not above his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they kill me, they're going to kill you. If they despise me, they're going to despise you. If they turn against me, they're going to turn against you. Jesus promised his disciples, whatever they do to me, watch me. Because whatever they do to me, they're going to do that to you too. And when they saw him go to the cross, everyone fled for their life because they thought, this is it. If we show up there at the cross, they may take us into custody and kill us next. We might be the next ones to get crucified, but John showed up anyway. Why did John show up anyway? Because John said, I've received too much love for him from him, and I've got too much love for him, and it doesn't matter what they do to me. I've got to be there with him till the end. There was too much love in John to run for his life. He had received too much love for Jesus. He had received so much love for Jesus that even at the threat of his own life, he had to stay by the side of Jesus. I can't run. Where would I run to? And it's interesting to me that we sang, that, that Pastor Chinway led us in that song at the end of the worship set, our devotion, our affection poured out on the feet of Jesus. Our devotion, our affection poured out on the feet of Jesus. Because today I was meditating about that woman with her alabaster box. We find it there in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and following. The scripture said that there was a certain Pharisee who invited Jesus to come dine at his house. And Jesus came to the home of this Pharisee and sat at the table. And this woman, it says she was a sinner. It doesn't tell us what kind of a sinner she was. But there was typically one kind of sin that women in that time could commit. And and she was probably that kind of a sinner. But when she heard that Jesus sat at the table, she came to the house and brought an alabaster box of expensive fragrance, and she came and stood behind him at his feet weeping, the scripture says. And she fell at his feet, and she bathed his feet in her tears, dried his feet with her hair, and then broke open the alabaster box and poured the fragrant oil over his feet. The Pharisee who invited him to his home was watching the thing go down and was hating on Jesus, but in his mind. See, you can't hate on Jesus in your mind because he can read your mind. (laughs) And what the man was thinking was, If this man was a prophet, if this man was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who's touching his feet because she was not only touching his feet, she was kissing his feet. Look at this man, got this woman kissing all up on him. He ain't no prophet. If he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was who's touching him. The Pharisees were watching this whole thing go down and they were going, "Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now watch this. Imagine what it would have been like to be that woman. Imagine how much shame and humiliation you would have had to endure. Imagine the emotional wall 
you would have had to overcome. Imagine the questions in your heart and mind. I feel so compelled to do this, but is this okay? What's he going to do? Is he going to reject me? Is he going to look at me and say, you wicked woman, get your hands off of me? Are they going to throw me out? Are they going to take me outside the city and stone me? What is going to happen? Am I going to be utterly rejected and humiliated for this? Can you imagine how difficult that moment was for that woman? But what compelled her was love. Jesus senses what this Pharisee is thinking in his heart. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And the Pharisee says, speak on, teacher. Jesus says, there was, there was a man who had two servants. Both of them owed him money. One owed him $500. It's probably bigger than that. It was 500 denarii, which is 500 days wages. So it's like a year and a half salary he owed the master. So let's say he owed him about $100,000. But the other guy owed him $10,000, 10%. 500 denarii and 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay. So the master forgave them both. He said, you know what? Y'all don't have to pay me nothing, neither of you. Which one do you think loved the master more? And Simon said, the one who was forgiven the bigger debt. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. And then he turns to the woman and says, Simon, do you see this woman? He turns to the woman, but he's talking to Simon. He's looking at the woman but he's talking to Simon. And I can imagine at the very moment he turns his face toward the woman, the woman is thinking, this is it. This is the moment where I get rejected. Now he's going to kick me in the teeth. He's going to call me a wicked woman, and he's going to throw me out of this place. This is it. This is this. Well, I knew this was a possibility. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Still looking at the woman. And Simon says, yes. Jesus says, I came into your house and you gave me nothing with which to wash my feet, but this woman washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. I came into your house, you gave me no greeting, no kiss. That was the traditional greeting, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. I say to you that though this woman's sins were many, I say to you that she is forgiven, for he who has been forgiven of much will be a lover of much. You want to know how I know that she's forgiven? Look at how much she loves. Look at how, you want to know if you've been forgiven of your sins? Look at how much you love Jesus. How much love for Jesus is there in your heart? You see, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 24 says, Grace to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. An undying love. You know what an undying love is? It's a love that does not die in the face of persecution, in the face of tribulation, in the face of hardship, in the face of rejection, in the face of difficulty. It's a love that does not die. It's a love that does not wane. It's a love that takes a licking and keeps on ticking. You are only as spiritually mature as your love for Jesus. And the thing that we must understand, you that this is one that we always often get wrong in the body of Christ, that we interpret the love of Jesus. How much love do you have for Jesus? We interpret that emotionally. Yeah. Now you can tell how much love somebody has for Jesus by how emotional they get. No. 
That's not how you measure your love for Jesus. You don't measure your love for Jesus by how much you cry when you watch the Passion of the Christ. Because there's folks who watch the Passion of the Christ and cry their eyes out, and they don't love Jesus a bit. It's just sad to see somebody get beaten and die like that. We, just, we might just feel complete human empathy for somebody who's dying and they're innocent. You could watch a story about anybody getting killed who didn't do nothing wrong and cry. I wept my eyes out watching Hotel Rwanda. You remember that movie? I, I, I was inconsolable after watching that movie, but, but, but it was because of it's human empathy. Of course, we've got that empathy mechanism. Don't think that just because you cry, you love Jesus, and don't think that just because you don't cry, you don't love Jesus. Don't think that just because you're not an emotional person, you're not a lover of Jesus. You know how to measure your love for Jesus? When the going gets tough, are you still there? When you hit a hardship, are are you still there? The strength of your love for Jesus is determined by your ability to stick close to his side in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty, to say, I'm still gonna walk with Jesus, but if there's any measure of hardship that separates you from the side of Jesus, if there's anything that knocks you off your game and says, all of a sudden I took a, I took a, a three-month vacation from walking with Jesus because I went through this hard time, and you hear it all the time. Brother, I haven't seen you in church in about three months. Where have you been? Oh, I've been going through a hard time. A hard time separated you from Jesus. And I'm not saying being at church is the mark of loving Jesus either. I'm simply simply speaking to the reality that in our generation, the greatest malady of contemporary Christianity in our day and in our time is the tendency to walk away from Jesus because of something that happened with other people. I'm not walking with Jesus. Why? Because of what happened at my church. I'm not walking with Jesus anymore. Why? Because of what, what my pastor did. I'm not walking with Jesus. Why? Because there's too many hypocrites in the church. I'm, your pastor didn't die for your sins. The hypocrites in the church didn't die for your sins. Your mama didn't die for your sins. Your daddy didn't die for your sins. Did Jesus do it? No. Jesus died for your sins. I was hurt by those people. Were you hurt by Jesus? Then why are you walking away from him? And most of us, and this is the key, see, see, most of us, we think, you know, that pastor's not talking about me. He's talking about backsliders. And thank the Lord I never backslid. So, you know, them backsliders that walk away from Jesus. Matter of fact, I got a perfect attendance record at church. I go to church every single week. I ain't never missed a Sunday, so I'm not one of them. Mm-mm, mm-mm. You may not walk away from him, but you may take a few steps to the right. Only Peter out of the 12 denied him. Well, Judas sold him. The other 10 didn't deny him. But nine of them, when they saw the cross coming, they took a few steps to the right. I'm just going to go right on over here. Hope it works out for you, Jesus. You may not abandon your faith, but you might abandon your time of prayer every day. You may not deny Jesus and walk away, but you haven't cracked your Bible in about six months. 
As soon as you hit that trial, your heart started to separate him. And it might, it might have even been just in a minute way, in a small way, in a, a very subtle way. And it was so subtle that it allowed you to continue to think that you were just the same, that you were all right. I still love Jesus and, and I still, and everything's just the same. And I love Jesus. I'm not doing anything wrong and I'm not, I'm not falling off and I'm not backsliding. I'm still loving Jesus. But you've just taken a few steps to the right. You've just you just you haven't walked away you've just kind of turned aside just a little bit and said let me weather this storm what we don't realize when when the love of Jesus grabs a hold of your heart it causes you to realize that the storm is not the place to separate from Jesus the storm is the place to draw closer to Jesus John said I'm going to stick closer and the hardest part of the storm is the lack of understanding this is what's crazy to me. John and these four women are standing at the cross of Jesus, even though they have no clue what's going on. Yeah. For us, it's easy looking back. You see him up on the cross. Do you see what Bob Goff said? He talked about the crucifixion of Jesus and how, how the Pharisees, they laughed and, and how hell had a celebration, but God just started counting backwards from three. <laughs> you know? Like, as soon as he said, it is finished, God said, three. The next day, God goes, two. And the next morning, one. And the resurrection occurs, right? I mean, like, and we're on the victory side of the cross, so it's easy for us to look back and go, it's not a big deal. I mean, you know, he's dying. And that's like, but God, he's going to rise from the dead. They didn't know that. The disciples did not have the privilege of that information. In their mind and heart, the Pharisees could have been right. Maybe this thing has come to nothing. Maybe he's not who he said he was. Maybe he's not who we thought he was. Maybe this whole thing's... Literally, John and these four women are still standing at the cross even though they are forced to face the possibility that they've been wrong all this time. That is, they have developed a mature love that does not demand an explanation as a prerequisite for faithfulness. Well, I don't understand that, God. So, God, you gotta, you just help me understand that because I don't get that. I, I just, I don't understand it. Yeah, but love says, but I'm here anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have to understand. I just have to trust. Yeah. I don't have to get it. I've just got to get you. Wow. Yeah. And it says... That Jesus looks down and he sees these four. And he realizes, I need someone to take care of my mom. And he looks and he sees John. And he said, if he stuck by me, he'll stick by her. I don't think we get it. One of the greatest privileges and compliments God could ever give you is an assignment. It doesn't matter what the assignment is. For God to give you an assignment, do you know how much he has to trust you? For God to give you an assignment, you know why God doesn't give a lot of people assignments? He, he looks in their hearts, I have to judge you for it later because I know you ain't going to do it. I'm not going to give you a test that I'm going to have to give you an F on. I, I know you're not ready for this test. Say, so why doesn't God speak to me? Because he knows you're not going to obey. 
And when God looks at your heart and knows you're not ready to obey, it's his grace when he doesn't talk to you. He says, I'm just going to wait this out. I'm going to give you a little bit longer. I'm going to speak to you. Don't worry, but not yet. You're not ready yet. When you're ready, I'll speak. It doesn't matter what the assignment, this is the crazy thing. It doesn't matter what the assignment is. The greatest, one of the greatest compliments God could ever give you is an assignment. Like literally, if God said to you, I need you to go to the store for me, your heart should just explode with godly pride. Like, you need me to go to the, to the store for you? Are you kidding? Are you crying? That's crying. Of course, I'm honored to go to the, you, the store. What do you need? I just need a, a two-liter bottle of soda. Soda for God? Are you so, Man, and the whole way to the store, he's like, I can't believe God said he needs me. to. Go. He could have asked anybody to go to the store. He could have manifested that soda there himself, but he sent me. You know how much he's got to love and trust me? Some of us would have been like, Jesus looks down and says, John, that's your mother now. Mom, there goes your son. Some of us would have been like, that ain't my mama. You want me to take care of her? The last thing Jesus did was obligate me to care for an elderly woman. <laughs> you call me to be an apostle. I'm an apostle to the nations. I ain't no elderly caregiver. Shoot, I don't know how I'm going to take care of my own mama. How am I going to take care of somebody else's mama? Mm-mm, I'm putting her in a home. I saw a nice one down the street. Put her in there right next to my mama. <laughs> I ain't never put my mama in a home. You ain't got to worry. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. That was jokes. Those were jokes. <laughs> if I had to carry both my parents around, <laughs> they ain't going to no home. Charles, you get one leg, I'll get the other. <laughs> <laughs> These are my parents over here, by the way, if you're, if you're new to us and you, yeah, and that's my brother. You know what John feels when Jesus gives, gives him that assignment? He feels incredibly honored, incredibly honored. John did not grow up dreaming about taking care of Jesus's mama. If you would have asked John, what's your destiny? He would have never said, to take care of the mama of my Lord. <laughs> if you would have asked him, what are your spiritual gifts? He would have never said, caring for elderly women. See, some of us have a prerequisite in our mind and heart. God, I'll do anything you want as long as it conforms to my own understanding of who I am and what my gifts are and what my destiny is and what I want to do and what my hopes and my dreams. And, and as long as it's financially lucrative as well, then I'll do whatever you want. As long as it's in the, the city and state or location that I, I want to be in. <clears throat> and as long as you give me the spouse that I need. 
We got all of these prerequisites. You know what love does? Love causes us to destroy our agendas, to take our agendas and throw them in the toilet. Because this is what the cross was. The cross represented the ultimate loss of the agenda of all 12 of the disciples. They had an agenda in their minds. He's the Messiah, and we are his 12 closest companions. He's going to restore the kingdom to David. He's going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. We're going to sit on 12 thrones around him. And all of these Pharisees that have been hating on us, shoo. Just wait till we get put in the place of power. They had an agenda. And on, and on Palm Sunday, when he sits on the donkey, they think he's going to do it. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. He's going to fulfill our hopes and dreams. And he goes to the temple. We talked about this last Sunday. He goes to the temple and leaves without doing it. And less than a week later, he's hanging on a cross. The cross represented the loss of their agenda. Every hope and dream they had that Jesus would do for them, the cross was God's no. Here's the question. Do you still love Jesus? When following him causes you to lose everything you've hoped for? When it brings you to the end of your hope and your expectation? When it demands you to take your agenda and flush it down the toilet? Are you still loving Jesus there? You know what our trials are? Whenever we walk through a trial as believers in Jesus Christ, whenever we walk through a hardship, whenever we experience pain and loss, you must remember that this is the work of the cross in you. The cross is working in you. The cross is working in you. The cross is working in you. And when the cross begins to work in you, your flesh goes crazy. It starts demanding that God reverse it. It starts demanding that God give an answer. It starts demanding that God give an explanation. Your flesh goes crazy. You start telling God it's not fair. And, and it, as soon as you start saying it's not fair, you know you're in the flesh. You start saying, why me? You start comparing yourself to other people. You start feeling like this isn't fair. I've prayed. How come you're not answering? You, and you start quoting scriptures back to God. Didn't you say whatsoever things you ask for when you pray, believe that you have received them and you shall have them? But the one scripture you'll never quote back to God is, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and come and follow me. Jesus looks down. You know what he sees? He doesn't just see that there's only five people there. You know what he sees? Love. Love. You remember what he said to his disciples, John 13, 35? By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. How? That you love one another. And notice he didn't even say, love me. 
Isn't that crazy? He did say the greatest commandment of the law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The standard of Jesus was love. And then he says, greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. They, don't, they think that he's failing. They don't realize he's succeeding. See, this is the key. I, I, I can tend to paint a very negative story. Like, if you follow Jesus, you're going to lose everything. And that's the work of the cross, is you losing everything and throwing away your agenda, and that's good because you're going to lose everything. That's not what it's about. The message of the cross is that at the moment you think you're losing everything, at that, you're ve- at that very moment you are gaining everything. Because you got to lose in order, listen, you got to lose what you think you need in order to obtain what God knows you need. You can't see what it is that God has for you, but God sees something greater than what you wanted for yourself. And God has to kill your agenda in order to give him yours, give you his. At the very moment, they're looking at the cross, feeling sorry for him because Oh, it must be so hard for Jesus that everything he hoped for has come to nothing. They think that Jesus must be so disappointed to be dying right now, only three years into his ministry. He's so young. He's got all of this music still on the inside of him. He hasn't fulfilled his potential. And Jesus would say, I'm not trying to fulfill my potential. I'm trying to fulfill the the Father's will. I never came here to fulfill my potential. Listen, you got to get that idea out of your mind and heart. I'm trying to fulfill my potential. You would never fulfill your potential. And, who, and you, would, you would kill yourself trying. You got so much potential, you'll be so distracted trying to fulfill all of it. You'd be trying to be a musician and a dancer and a painter and a poet and a pastor and a businessman and a prophet and a teacher and an and a, and, and a educator. You'd be trying to do everything at once because you've got so many gifts. you got more gifts than you think you know. That didn't make sense, but you got a lot of gifts. (laughs) Jesus, I'm not trying to fulfill my potential, and I'm not disappointed. You guys are looking at me like I failed, and what you don't realize is that this is my greatest moment of success. That when he was approaching the cross, he prayed in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. He was talking about the cross. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Sounds like lifted up and exalted, right? No, lifted up and crucified. It was the the hour of his greatest glory, the hour when he succeeded. This was his greatest moment of success when he took to himself the sum total of anguish and drank even the lees of that cup, when he took to himself all of the suffering and all of the sin and all of the, the woes and evils of the world, and it was nailed to his body on the cross, and he put it all to death. He had to die so that it could die. And everyone walks away except these five but he looks down and sees these five. And then he lifts up his head and says, it is finished. When he says, it is finished, you know what he means? I succeeded. It worked. It worked. This is a little mini celebration. We won. It's like an NBA championship. The last bucket just went in the hole and we won. We're the victors. We won this thing. It's done. It's finished. We're victorious. We did it. Father, he's celebrating. He's like, Father, it's finished. We did it. Why? 
Only five people are left. How can you feel like you're victorious when only five people are left? Because, you know what I see? Undying love. And as long as that undying love is in the earth, that undying love for Jesus is in the earth, I don't care how dark the hour looks. I don't care if there's only, I mean, listen, literally, at that moment, there were five believers. Five. After all of his sermons and miracles and, and all, there were five believers left. And Jesus said, victory. We did it. We did it. <laughs> it's done. It is finished. It's finished. <laughs> I can go sit down now, Father. Because you don't sit down until your work is finished. You know what he's looking for? Undying love. And you know what undying love will require? It'll require the loss of your agenda. And that's not a devastating, that's not a terrible moment. That's actually the moment when you truly begin to live. The moment at which you've lost all of you, you begin to gain all of God. Yeah. Yeah. And undying love starts to set in. As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him? That's undying love. Yeah. No matter what, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Come hell or hot water, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm not just going to follow him to heaven when I die. I'm going to wake up in the morning and start following him. That's what it means when I get on my knees and begin to pray. That's what it means when I open my word and begin to meditate. I'm following Jesus. Nothing's going to stop me from following Jesus. And when I come to the house of God to worship with the people of God, I'm following Jesus. When I lift up my hands to worship, I'm following Jesus. When I get in the car and I continue to worship, I'm following Jesus. I'm going to follow him to church. I'm going to follow him home from church. I'm not just going to pay him lip service, but my soul is going to follow hard after you. Undying love. And this is the last thing I'll say as the musicians come. Undying love is not something that can be imparted to you at an altar through the laying on of hands. There's not enough oil in the world that could be poured over you that would make you an undying lover of Jesus. You know how you get undying love for Jesus? You walk through many trials and tribulations and you simply make a decision each time not to let your love die. Yeah. Yeah. It's worked in you. Yeah. You see, many of you in this room right now, you've either come out of a, a fiery trial or you're in the middle of a fiery trial right now. You know what God is building in you? Undying love. Yeah. You know what he wants to show you in the midst of that trial? That he has undying love for you. Yes. Because Jesus died, but his love didn't. Had the moment his love would have died, he would have come down from the cross. Either his love would have died or he would. But both couldn't live at the same time. He let his love live. And that's why he died. It was his greatest victory. You know what? You're going to look back on your life and you're going to realize that your greatest moments of victory were your deepest moments of surrender. 
Because when you have envisioned yourself victorious, you know what you envision? You envision breakthrough and blessing. and That's not what God's looking for. When you look back and say, I endured that cross. And I love Jesus right through it. That's your greatest moment of victory. You're going to look back and treasure the things you suffered and walked with Jesus through more than you will value and treasure the areas in which you were victorious. Victories are a dime a dozen, but trials, those are precious. If you knew how precious your trials were, you would never look down on them again. If you knew how precious your trials were, how valuable, how much glory comes out of them. And if you understood that what God is seeking to do in your trial is to break you through, not even necessarily into a new level of blessing, but a new level of surrender. And this is the message of the cross. That Jesus was willing to surrender to the Father and so embrace the cross. And then he says, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross. What's your cross? Your cross is everything that you're going to have to endure in order to follow Jesus. Jesus, pick it up, follow me. Every decision you have to make, every form of ridicule that you'll have to endure, every moment of rejection that you're going to have to experience to follow Jesus, to keep following him, that's your cross. Pick it up. Come follow me. I'm not asking you to do anything I didn't do. What you don't realize is that once you do pick up that cross, there's more joy in that life than you could ever imagine. There's more joy. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. He said there's more joy in that cross than evading it. There's more joy by going to that cross than trying to walk away from it. There's more joy. There's more joy in walking through that trial. There's more joy. There's greater joy. There's greater grace. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I speak your blessing over each and every one of these sons and daughters of yours. And I pray, Father, that you would release within us a spirit of surrender. Our greatest victory comes from our greatest surrender. But, Father, in so many of us, God, there's a war going on in our soul. There's a battle going on in our soul. We're trying to retain possession of our own lives and surrender to you at the same time, and it's tearing us apart. But, God, tonight we say we surrender. We say it by faith. Holy Spirit, would you empower our surrender? And, Lord, through our surrender, would you release within us undying love for Jesus? Would you release within us that undying love, that love that would cause us to stand at the cross when everyone else runs and hides, that love that would cause us to be like the woman with the alabaster box, unafraid of the ridicule, unafraid of the rejection, unafraid of the judgment. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I want you just to spend a few moments with the Lord tonight.